Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Imagine the human habitat in which we all live changing so rapidly that life as we know it becomes extinct. Temperatures hotter than ever before, decades-long droughts, catastrophic fires, melting polar ice, rising sea level, and unprecedented winter storms are expected to radically limit the food production and availability of potable water. In this, the first of a series on near-term extinction of the human species, we visit with Dr. Guy R. McPherson, Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources, Ecology, and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. Professor McPherson is co-author with Carolyn Baker of Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind. Together they present what appears to be overwhelming scientific evidence that our environment is headed for a swift apocalyptic collapse. Not only is this extinction likely, but it's occurring every day before our eyes. How to live with death in mind is the goal. Living with urgency is the practice. The point from which average global temperature rise is measured dates back to 1750, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the time at which the ever-increasing use of fossil fuels began. Since 1850, the planet has been warmed by more than one degree centigrade, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. McPherson's book, Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind, explains how this small global rise in temperature is leading to a large-scale mass extinction on the planet Earth. When Guy McPherson and I visited my phone on September 14, 2015, we began our conversation when I asked him to describe the indicators that reveal we are in an era of unstoppable climate change. We're clearly at this point in the midst of the sixth mass extinction, the, the, the sixth mass extinction event in the history of planet Earth. This one, though, is being driven by a single species, ours, as we drive to extinction 150 to 200 species every day, according to a report from the United Nations, now more than five years old. So it's undoubtedly conservative, was conservative then, and is undoubtedly conservative now. In addition to that, all that, we, we still are, are warming the planet every year. Um, we're on track for 2015 to be the warmest year in planetary history. Um, that that will eclipse the record set last year, 2014, when the global average temperature was 1.17 degrees Celsius above that baseline from 1750. So again, it doesn't sound like much, but these are tremendous changes when you warm a, a, a planet the size of ours and warm the amount of water on this planet. We're basically a water planet. You warm all that water, it takes a tremendous amount of heat to get that done. So we're well past the point at which we can say with, with any sort of certainty that if we stop now, if we stop warming the planet now, it's all going to be fine. Well, before we get there, let's uh, go back to your comment that 150 species become extinct every day. What are some of those species well, mostly they're species that we don't even actually identify. To, to firmly declare that a species has gone extinct, 
uh, biologists require many years to pass since its most recent sighting. So that 150 to 200 species that the United Nations was discussing in their August report from 2010 is based upon estimates. And particularly, if a certain species, we'll call it a keystone species, if it goes extinct, and what other species go down with it? So it's an indicator or a keystone species. And there's been a lot of work done on that very topic by conservation biologists. Um, But among the species that are going extinct, that already have gone extinct, are things like um, amphibians, which are particularly sensitive to changes in atmospheric chemistry and to temperature. So things like uh, leopard frogs. Um, and, and, but for the most part, to be honest, it's things that we don't identify with very well. It's organisms that we even have difficulty seeing or identifying with because they don't have warm, fuzzy faces like us. So they're microbes and bacteria. They're fungi and these little things that we think aren't doing anything for us. But in fact, they're providing for all or most of our food at some level and they're providing for decomposition of dead plant material, for example. Let's look at the changes that have been happening uh, since 1750, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, that are having the effect on our world and primarily on the Homo sapiens, on us. So in addition to the global average rise in temperature, which is already at the slow, relatively linear rate of change we have triggered so far, that's outstripping habitat for non-human species. That includes things like food. In addition, we see all kinds of catastrophe around us on a pretty regular basis for the people who are paying attention. We're seeing superstorms, the likes of which we've never observed before. Since 2005 with Katrina, there has been a 100-year event in terms of storms or floods or drought on on a very regular basis, seemingly on a weekly basis. The, the storms that have arisen since Katrina are legion and include Sandy and more recently the uh, Typhoon Haiyan that struck the Philippines. Um, and, and it's not just storms that have the power to level cities. It's fires that we no longer have the ability to control because they're burning so hot and so fast. And and here we need only look to almost anywhere in the northern half of the northern hemisphere, from Siberia to Canada to Alaska to California. The fires are really pretty impressive at this point. The fires that you speak of are just like the one that is happening in Lake County, California, 50 miles away from uh, the home of Radio Curious. Well, Guy McPherson, what are the causes of the megastorms, the superstorms, the El Ninos, the uh, fires that you speak of? It's relatively simple thermodynamics. You add heat to a system, and the system tries to come into equilibrium by releasing that heat. And among the most rapid ways to release heat are in the forms of funnels. Think uh, when you flush the toilet, uh, the, the vortex that forms. Think of tornadoes. Think of hurricanes. These are things that spiral. And all those are examples of rapid energy release. 
in the ocean, what we're seeing is hurricanes that are driven by greater heat than they've ever been driven before, at least in human history. And uh, so the, the attempt by the oceans to release the heat that have been absorbed by the oceans over the last couple hundred years is producing hurricanes. On land, is producing tornadoes. On land, is producing a bunch of fuel, dry fuel, which in the ignition source then allows to release energy even faster in the form of these catastrophic wildfires. So there's all kinds of ways that systems attempt to come into equilibrium. And the current system is out of equilibrium in that there's a lot more energy, a lot more heat in the oceans and in terrestrial regions than there ever has been in human history. And so how does the planet get rid of that heat? It attempts to by hurricanes and tornadoes and, and, and all these other things that we've been talking about so far. Guy, I want to ask you about what is causing the change in this uh, heat of which uh, the Earth's systems are moving into an equilibrium. What but we before... have so far is carbon dioxide being emitted through industrial activity. And that carbon dioxide traps more of the heat than would otherwise be trapped in Earth's atmosphere. So in 1750, for example, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, up until that point in human history, the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere was never more than 280 parts per million. Now it's at about 400 parts per million. And each molecule of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere enables the atmosphere to trap more heat. It's like putting on blankets at night. The blankets don't directly make it warmer. They just hold the heat against your body, against the bed. And so that's what the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is doing right now, is holding that heat close to the planet. So that's just carbon dioxide, which has increased uh, about 40% since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the atmosphere. And then let's take a look at one other from among the handful of greenhouse gases. Let's take a look at methane or methane. Methane has about 100 times the power as a greenhouse gas of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Methane is currently at about 240% higher than it was at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So there we have two greenhouse gases that are trapping heat that is produced by the sun, and the shortwave radiation strikes the Earth. Uh, shortwave and longwave radiation tries to leave the Earth and go back out into the atmosphere. And the greenhouse gases, including water vapor, methane, carbon dioxide, ozone, chlorofluorocarbons, all those serve to trap the heat in the longwave radiation before it can get back out into space. So, so that's Climate Change 101. Well, let's stay with that for a few minutes. But before we go there, uh, in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Professor Guy McPherson, a professor emeritus from the University of Arizona, who, along with Carolyn Baker, is the author of Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind. I'm Barry Vogel. This is Radio Curious. Guy, talk about the activities on the Earth since 1750, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, that has resulted in this radical increase of carbon dioxide and methane gas. 
the big one there is burning fossil fuels. And it was 1750 that we began burning fossil fuels at scale. Now, there's little question that humans were burning fossil fuels in relatively small amount. Well, about 1750, we started to come up with ideas like the steam engine. Oh, now we can go faster. We can warm a whole bunch of people. Now we start building cities, much larger cities. And we started burning fossil fuels to stay warm and to heat the water that we so enjoy. There's nothing quite like a hot shower. So in 1750 and beyond, we started burning those fossil fuels at much larger scale to enable convenience increasingly to become part of our lives. And, and why not? I mean, we're, we're just like other animals in that if there's a shortcut, we're going to find it through trial and error. And if it's a shortcut that, that makes our lives more convenient, we're going to remember how that happened and keep returning back to it. So it was in roughly 1750 that we discovered things like, oh, an internal combustion engine. By 1850, those things were starting to be built. And by the early 1900s, you know, with uh, Henry Ford, they were being built very, very quickly. By the time we get to 1900, or even 1850, the cities are well established. Uh, Almost everything about the city is propped up by fossil fuels burning coal, burning steam, building the roads, providing the transport, the rapid transport, so that the food can show up in the grocery stores. Everything that we've come to hold dear and take for granted about those cities has become completely dependent upon the exploitation of fossil fuels and the burning of fossil fuels at a very large scale. Turning back the clock is pretty tough especially at the level of entire societies. So talk about methane and its source and its consequences. Methane is produced from a couple of ways, quote, naturally on the planet. In addition, it's a fossil fuel too. Another word for methane is natural gas. It's CH4 is the chemical description of it. So we burn natural gas to heat our homes and to heat our water. Out in nature, when permafrost degrades, it decomposes into methane and um, carbon dioxide and water. Out in the relatively shallow seafloor, especially in the Arctic Ocean, which is warming much faster than the rest of the planet, there's a bunch of methane trapped in chemical cages called clathrates or hydrates. Those clathrates or hydrates, when they warm up just a little bit, the chemical cage breaks, which releases the methane, the CH4, directly into the water column or directly into the atmosphere. That methane has, in the short term of a decade or so, has the heating power, molecule for molecule, about 100 times higher than that of carbon dioxide. So whereas methane is measured in the parts per billion, so we're talking about relatively low numbers compared to the parts per million of carbon dioxide. The impact is great because it is such a tremendous trapper of heat. Carbon dioxide is good. Water vapor is good. But methane is great at trapping long-wave radiation and holding it close to the planet. How is the methane being released to get in the position to trap? Well, 
two primary ways, uh, three primary ways, really. Uh, one, um, as, we, as we frack, we lose a lot of methane directly into the atmosphere. So that's just natural gas that is leaking out into the atmosphere as we try to exploit it and capture it. The second way is natural, quote, natural decomposition of permafrost as the permafrost warms, releases a lot of methane into the atmosphere. And so what we've done now is create an environment in which the methane is being released ever faster as the permafrost has turned into permamelt for all practical purposes. The Earth has warmed only about one degree Celsius above where it was in 1750, but that's enough to drive rapid release of methane from permafrost by melting the methane. And, and the third source is the clathrates or hydrates in the relatively shallow sea floor, mostly in the Arctic, but also off the west coast of the United States, off the east coast of the United States, the ring of fire around New Zealand. There's a lot of methane clathrates that are giving up the methane there as the clathrates heat up those chemical, cage, chemical cages break and allow the methane to be released into the water column or into the atmosphere. So one degree Celsius temperature rise at the level of the planet doesn't sound like a heck of a lot, but the United Nations Advisory Group on Greenhouse Gases in October of 1990 announced their conclusion that one degree Celsius is the absolute upper limit beyond which we cannot go above that 1750 baseline. Well, guess what? We're there. They pointed out that beyond that one degree Celsius Rubicon, we would trigger all kinds of self-reinforcing feedback loops. Well, as it turns out, that very upper limit was way too conservative. As David Spratt points out in a video from October 2014, half a degree Celsius was a more reasonable target, and we passed that point a long time ago. So we've already triggered dozens, literally dozens, of self-reinforcing feedback loops. Let's stay with self-reinforcing feedback loops. Can you uh, explain that? Sure. So these self-reinforcing feedback loops are the, the snake eating its own tail. The phenomenon, once triggered, that goes ever faster and becomes beyond the ability to control. So, for example, it's the runaway train that the uh, engineer had a heart attack and died right after filling the coal bin, and it's going downhill. So the, the faster it goes, the more ground it covers, the more ground it covers, the faster it goes. There, there's no stopping it. It goes ever faster, um, and, and there's no longer an engineer to even hit the brakes. And, and there are no brakes at the level of um, methane being released from the subsea permafrost in the Arctic Ocean. There are no brakes with respect to the permafrost that has become the permamelt. All, all of these self-reinforcing feedback loops are now beyond our ability to control because once triggered, there's no stopping them. It's the snowball that starts rolling down the hill. It gets ever bigger, picks up more mass as it goes, and as it picks up more mass, it goes faster. As it goes faster, it picks up more mass. That's, that's the self-reinforcing feedback loop. An excellent example from climate science is the Arctic ice. So as long as the Arctic is covered with a bunch of ice, in the North American summertime, the sun strikes it, it's a bunch of snow and ice. It's light-colored, 
So the incoming sunlight is reflected back out into space. But the Arctic ice is going away. And so now the sun strikes the Arctic, and instead of being bounced off by all that ice, the incoming radiation is absorbed by the open ocean, by that blue, that dark blue water that soaks in the incoming radiation instead of bouncing it off. So that's a classic self-reinforcing feedback loop. The smaller the ice gets, the more radiation is soaked up by the Earth, and the hotter the Arctic gets, and so the faster the the ice melts. And the faster the ice melts, the more radiation gets soaked up instead of being reflected. It just keeps going. There's no stopping it. So you say in your book, Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind, that there's no politically viable way to deal with this problem. When I read that, what came to my recollection was in the United States in January of 1942, at the beginning of World War II, President Roosevelt said that all car manufacturers will retool and begin to manufacture airplanes, and the people who worked in those plants were women, and the men went to war. Do you see anything like that that can be done now with the current situation as you describe it? Up up until a few years ago, probably 2007, uh, there are things that could have been done that would have reversed or prevented runaway climate change. It appears that 2007 was the year methane went exponential in the atmosphere. And so we were at that point when permafrost was perennially melting and methane was being released from beneath the shallow sea floor of the Arctic Ocean. Interestingly, 2007 was when Tim Garrett wrote his epic paper pointing out that civilization is a heat engine. So at that point, the world leaders could have stepped forward and said, civilization itself is a heat engine. We know that we're overheating the planet. What we have to do is turn off the heat engine. We need to turn off civilization itself. It doesn't matter whether we use solar panels or wind turbines or wave power or fossil fuels. Civilization itself is a heat engine. We need to turn it off. So we're asking everybody to do that World War II effort times a few million That's the order of magnitude we're talking about, times a few million. So we need everybody to stop burning fossil fuels right now. We need to give up on the idea of economic growth or even a steady-state economy. We need to bring this whole thing down to the level of the early 1700s in terms of our technology. And we need to do that this week. Okay, we'll give you a little break. We'll give you until the end of the month. So when I say there's no politically viable approach to dealing with climate change, that's what I'm talking about. You can imagine any politician that said that in the year 2007 would have not only been voted out of office, but he might have been tarred and feathered. What is your take on Pope Francis's recent encyclical on climate change? It would have been a fine idea 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. But at this point, it's too late. We've triggered all these self-reinforcing feedback loops. There's no going back. It's, it's game over. So in the not-too-distant future, well, there will be no habitat for humans on this planet, just like every other species. Guy McPherson, what do you see as the short-term effect 
on our species when you use the term abrupt climate change? I see a global average temperature rise beyond which humans have persisted at any point in the past on this planet. So what that means is we've, we've never had humans on the planet at 3.3 degrees Celsius above baseline. And the number might be actually lower than that. The jury is still out. It might be as little as 2 or 2.5 degrees Celsius above that 1750 baseline. So when we talk about abrupt climate change, we're talking about the kinds of events that have happened throughout Earth's history. So, for example, uh, 55 million years ago, there was an abrupt warming event that led to a 5 degrees Celsius temperature rise in a period of only 13 years, according to the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, published in October 2013. So there are these kinds of virtually instantaneous events with respect to geological timescales that have occurred in the past, and we're clearly at the early stages of that kind of event right now. In addition, we don't even need to look at methane. We don't even need to consider methane or the other greenhouse gases. Because of global dimming, if industrial civilization turns off the switch, bear in mind that industrial civilization is a heat engine, and so every minute that it remains on overheats the planet a little bit more, boils the water out of that pot a little bit more. If we turn it off, that produces catastrophic heating in a span of days or weeks, hot enough to take us beyond the point at which humans have persisted at any time in the past. So, Turning it off increases the heat? Yes, because of global dimming, um, industrial activity puts a bunch of particulates, notably aerosols, into the atmosphere, and those serve as something of an umbrella for Earth. And when the umbrella is gone, rapid heating ensues. And what could make the umbrella be gone? Well, Industrial activity puts those aerosols, puts those atmospheric particles up into the atmosphere, and they're constantly falling out every day. Uh, almost as many particulates fall out as are put up in the atmosphere. Once we stop putting them up, in, them up into the atmosphere, they all fall out, fall out of the atmosphere in a, in a span of days or so. So what that means is you know, burning coal is a classic example. And high sulfur coal puts a lot of sulfates into the atmosphere that serves as a protective umbrella. Once we stop burning coal, the sulfates drop out of the sky and we lose the umbrella. So within a span of a few days, maybe a few weeks, after we turn off the heat engine, we experience unbelievably rapid heating as a result, up to a 3 degree Celsius temperature rise, according to a very conservative assessment, in a span of days after turning off the heat engine known as industrial civilization. So clearly, we're at this point, we're in the damned if you do and damned if you don't phase of abrupt climate change. We can either keep industrial civilization going, and it heats up the planet more every day, or we can turn civilization off, a choice that people are not going to make willingly, by the way. And if we do that, then we experience very, very rapid heating in a very, very short period of time that takes us beyond the point at which humans have persisted on this planet. 
Dr. Guy R. McPherson, a professor emeritus of natural resources, ecology, and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona, is co-author, along with Carolyn Baker, of Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind. The books that he recommends will be presented in part two of this conversation, recorded on September 14th, 2015. Radio Curious has over 500 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new programs published weekly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.